0: Blog Talk Radio. And welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, one of only six states in the U.S. that has a state crustacean, and it's the crawfish. And Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, the state where you will find America's only diamond line. In 1995, Hank Skinner was convicted of the brutal murders of his girlfriend, Twila Busby, and her two sons, Elwin Kaler and Randy Busby. Pre-trial DNA test results on his bloody clothing linked him to the murders. Skinner and his advocates have claimed that he was innocent and that DNA testing would exonerate him. Tonight, we'll be discussing the case against Skinner, his failed post-conviction claims, and the results of post-conviction DNA testing, which were performed in 2000 and 2014. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. And if you're listening, I've triple-dogged some people to call in, so the lines are open. And good evening, Michael. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well. Definitely uh, coming off of a great uh, ASWF show. You can obviously hear ASWF Aftermath every other Thursday night right here on Talk Radio 49. Uh, pretty diagom good show there. We uh, definitely got over our goal, so I uh, can't wait to continue and see what's in the future for that. But, you know, I'm definitely looking forward to this Uh In this case, you know, especially I'm always interested in Texas death penalty cases because, you know, when you, or at least for me, when you think death penalty, I automatically think the state of Texas. It's really, in my opinion, becomes synonymous with each other, Texas and death penalty, because Texas is really the most famous state to uh, have the death penalty.
0: That is correct. And they, they get a bad rap. Because they are, they're serious about it.
1: But, you know, really, when you think about it, and I just thought about this, Texas isn't really, you know, they they don't really deserve that bad rap as much as, you know, they're not really taking away a person's rights as much as they're being more efficient about it. And they found a way to make everything flow quicker to then execute the Mm -hmm. inmate quicker.
0: Correct. But they, you know, Texas prisoners still have due process. And well, when we look at cases like, like Skinner tonight, I mean, he was convicted in 1995.
2: Uh-huh.
0: So he's been on death row in Texas for 23 years. And in addition to having his conviction based partially upon the results of DNA testing on the clothing that he was wearing at the time of the murders, he's had two more rounds of DNA testing.
2: Well
1: I mean and let's he be still honest claims
0: that you know more more DNA testing is going to exonerate it.
1: Let's be honest here, really you can draw the comparisons as far as time frame goes to, you know, a lot of people said that if Damien wouldn't have taken the plea or the, uh, not the plea, but the, well, yeah, the Alford plea, he would, that was his last chance and he would have been executed by now. And that was back in 2012. So it's not like Texas has moved too fast on this.
0: Well, that, that is actually not correct, Michael. Um, When Eccles returned to Arkansas state court, With the motion for new trial and the DNA Uh testing, his federal habeas uh, case claim was stayed, which means paused. Uh So if he had been unsuccessful in uh, in the new trial motion, if that was denied, then he could have returned to federal court and begun the federal habeas process. Okay. And it would only have been once that process completed that he would have been, that the state of Arkansas would have been able to set an execution date. And I don't believe that it would have been completed by 2017 when they set execution dates for the eight men oh. at that time. I think he still would have been, he may have been close. To complete, he may have been at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals at that time. hmm But I don't think his I don't think his federal habeas claims would have been complete. Well,
1: and you know, I know we've investigated one of the gentlemen, uh, I believe, over on the American Idiot show. But uh, definitely, I wouldn't right. mind taking a look at. Uh, besides that case oh. I sent you uh, a couple of weeks ago about Wanda Jean Allen. And uh, Mm -hmm. Oklahoma, because I believe it speaks to the whole, uh, is it a constitutional problem, especially with her where she was found to have a low IQ, I believe that uh, that would be a very interesting case to just look at for people with mental disabilities being executed.
0: We did did talk about Liddell Lee, you and I.
1: Did we talk about Liddell on this show? Mm-hmm.
0: We, we sure did. But Stacey Johnson, who was another man who was set to be executed, he was able to return to state court to request mm-hmm. DNA testing. Mm-hmm. And that and was, he
1: the was I
0: believe, in November they had a hearing.
2: Mm-hmm. So yeah. i'll yeah. i'll put I'll...
0: Stacey i'll put Stacey Johnson on the schedule. Okay,
1: awesome, awesome. That'll definitely be an interesting one to look at as well, because you know that did get so many uh, so many looks. <laughs> but you know, a lot of people don't also look into the fact, and I don't mean to go off subject, but a lot of people also don't seem to look into the fact that those people had been, you know, I think at least Casey had been in. Prison since the late 80s. I could be wrong. One of them, I believe, had been in there since
3: 89.
0: Yeah. Liddell Lee and I believe Stacey Johnson were both paroled and committed their murders within a very short time of being paroled from other crimes, other charges. Right. So, yeah, so they had definitely- been. And I think something, too, that Um, I don't know if you're finding it in our discussions or not, but what you read in the media articles about the cases and the issues and what you read in the court records about the issues and the facts and evidence are often two diametrically opposed things
2: um oh, I mean, there's men, there's
0: a media article that says um uh, in, in, in say Skinner's case that you know hair evidence where the DNA is male and then the actual mitochondrial DNA report which mitochondrial DNA can't distinguish male or female right so you know that's something that and that was one of the reasons I wanted to do this show is to talk about what's in the court records, what evidence was presented at trial, to the best of my abilities, what do the actual laboratory reports say,
1: Well, rather actually, than what actually,
0: a media article says they say.
1: I have a question for you, you know, kind of getting okay. into the thing about Wanda Jean Allen and stuff. I remember a specific quote from Damien when he came back, and I believe you have, were talking about it. When he came back to Arkansas before these four inmates were executed, I believe it was four that they ended up executing, um, and he had said something about, you know, they were fighting it because one of the gentlemen was mentally ill. Is that a pretty common occurrence where. That's the last line of defense is, oh, you can't execute him because he is mentally ill?
0: That is a common uh, either mental retardation or mental illness or a combination of the two. And that is common.
1: up a lot in death penalty cases.
0: Um, and, you know, a couple cases that deal with mental illness, Scott Panetti in Texas, um, and there were uh, there was another like a landmark case in Texas, I think it's Penry,
2: uh-huh.
0: that deals with mental illness. But as with everything else, something that I think the public doesn't often understand is the burden is not on the state to disprove the claim, and the uh-huh. burden is not on the state to once again, prove the crime, guilt, or punishment. The burden is on the convicted person to prove that they have a mental retardation, intellectual issue, a mental illness issue, or something along those lines. They have to prove that. Right,
1: right. And,
0: uh, right, mental retardation... um, is usually a lot of times um, they will will allege this, but then unfortunately the prior penalty phase has school records. And they say, you know, the kid was a straight-A student and he was never in special education and he had good grades until he just started doing drugs and dropped out of school.
1: Well, and I don't so know if... that's
0: how a lot of those end up.
1: I don't know if you have watched that documentary I sent you on Wanda Jean Allen, but one of the things I can already tell you I'm going to hammer you pretty hard on is Oklahoma seems to have made up their own definition on, what's called pre, on what premeditation is. And I'm kind of uh, definitely going to hammer that one hard because they consider premeditation, hey, I'll walk to my vehicle to get the weapon. They consider that enough time to be premeditated and I think that's a little bit iffy.
0: Um, but we'll get um, into that. I hate I, I hate to tell you, Michael, but they're correct. Premeditation can be a second, five seconds. If you're not in your if you're if you're not in your vehicle and you have an altercation with somebody And you walk back to your vehicle and obtain a weapon. You've made a conscious decision to use a weapon and escalate whatever the problem might be. And that is premeditation. Premeditation doesn't mean that you have to sit for a week and write a plan or a to-do list. You know, um, set up alibi, buy gun by disguise you don't have mm-hmm. to do those things to actually plan okay. it can be okay. a- as much as going going from point a to point b obtaining a weapon and then going back to point a and using that weapon
1: so then and you have you to think?
0: remember You have to remember, too, that when you point a loaded gun at someone and pull the trigger, that's going to kill them or do grievous bodily harm. So, Very true. But uh, what were you about to ask me?
1: Well, what I was going to ask you was, in that case, why do you think – and I I could be wrong because I don't know a lot of states, but the ones that I remember – Oklahoma is the only one that's adopted that definition of premeditation. So why do you think that?
0: Well, I, I don't think that that's actually correct. Well, each state, in its own criminal uh, statutes has to define mm-hmm. they have to define premeditation, they have to define first degree murder, second degree murder, uh, they have to define the elements, um, they have to define the standard of proof of the elements and things of that nature. Um, that's something each state does have a right to define. And But if you look, I think if you look from state to state, and I will get different state definitions. If mm-hmm. you look at them, I think that you'll find that they are, for the most part, the same. In other sure. words, people the general public believes premeditation has to mean some length of time, a day, a week, a month of planning. And then it has to be real planning.
1: But what I mean is – And
0: even in in California, sometimes the difference in California between first degree and second degree is whether you had the weapon on you or whether you got it and you brought it back.
1: Well, and see that's exactly what I I mean in Oklahoma it seems like the definition is in a few seconds you have that decision to make whether it's premeditated mm-hmm. or not. No, and I I
0: know Which, from I know from a couple of other states and a couple of other cases the definition of premeditation can be a few seconds.
2: Mhm. So
0: we'll, we'll talk about it a little. We'll, we'll go back into that in depth with Wanda Jean Allen.
1: Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm I'm glad we talked
0: about this because this gives me, you know, some, some things to start mulling over.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, and especially, you know, uh, like I said I don't know if you've watched the documentary but definitely pay attention to some of the pre-trial testing in the first case she had against her because uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to bring that up here, uh, where she was actually declared you know legally mentally retarded um, and things like that so I mean and it's not that I'm I'm literally going to ask you why that defense didn't work or so on and so forth okay. and I kind Part of the reason also why I want you to uh, watch the documentary is because I want you to – because you've watched, you know, criminals throughout the years. I want you to tell me if you believe that she actually had a mental deficiency that kept her from comprehending what she was doing, which was her her appellate attorney's defense in trying to spare her. Okay.
0: Right. Mhm. Okay. Yeah, I haven't had a chance so- to watch it, but – uh, because we're doing the update show next Monday, mm-hmm. my weekend will not be consumed by appellate opinions. Yes.
2: Definitely.
0: <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I will take the time and and I I do have a friend's book I have to finish editing.
2: Oh, bless nice. her heart!
0: I've been putting, I've been doing a little bit and a little bit and a little bit and saying I'll finish it next week, and I keep not finishing it when I want to finish it. So this weekend, that's my priority, It's to go through, to your finish, time. give it another good run-through, and finally do what I promised her I'd do.
1: <laughs> well, let's talk about Mr. Skinner. Let's get back on to well, the reason why we're here tonight. Let's talk about the victims in this case. Uh, I believe the case actually took place in Pampa. Uh, I'm not sure if that's how you say it, or Pampa, Texas. Uh, yeah,
0: Pampa, Texas, which is in Gray Texas. County, and I believe that's up in the Panhandle.
1: And it was Elwin Taylor and Randy Busby that were the two yes. victims?
0: The, no, Twyla uh, Jean Ward Busby, she was 41,
2: Mm-hmm. um,
0: she uh, actually in her family was from Oklahoma, but they right. hadn't come to pam um and then her son elwin scooter was his nickname uh Taylor, he was twenty two uh, Elwin had muscular dystrophy, learning or developmental disabilities. And severe diabetes Mm -hmm. and was unable to work. So he lived at home with his mother. And then her son, Melvin Randall Busby Jr., who was 20, he also had some learning or developmental disabilities and also lived at home with his mother. Um, She also had a daughter named Lisa, Mm -hmm. who was a preteen or early teenager at the time of the okay. murders. Um And just to get into a little uh, preview, Lisa went to stay with her grandparents on New Year's Eve because mm-hmm. she was afraid of what Skinner might do that night because he and Twyla were alcoholics. Right. And probably abused drugs. He definitely abused drugs. Twyla may or may not have... a my research on her has been, um, you know, kind of contradictory. In some places, it, you know, they said she did use drugs and others she didn't. But um, he definitely did. He had a long criminal history. Um, in fact, when he got together with Twila, he had just been released from a sentence for unauthorized use of a motor vehicle which is car theft.
1: Okay. Okay. So and instead of grand auto, in this case, it was, hey, I, used, I stole a motor vehicle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, he had moved in with her during the summer. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was also known to be very jealous. Uh, Twyla had a okay. friend by the name of Howard Mitchell, And he did not like Twyla's friendship with Howard Mitchell because he believed that she would get drunk and, quote, screw up. Oh, wow. And Skinner also had a kind of a volatile relationship with his other girlfriends and prior first wife. And, you know, so he was not the – he comes across when you watch his interviews as this jovial – Somewhat intelligent. I don't find him to be that intelligent, slick, smooth talker. But I think that, you know, in the controlled environment of a prison, that's the Hank you're going to see. But outside in the free world, as a woman, you're going to see another side.
1: Right, and it's not it. a nice I mean, one. You talk about, <clears throat> you talk about like these things and you don't even have to look up these individual people themselves to see this. All you have to do is watch a very popular show. You know, it just actually just now got canceled after like, I think it was 20 year run, but uh, lock up. And they constantly talk about these inmates that they interview in the, in the prison systems that they go to that uh, that, you know. Act one way in front of the camera and to them, and then turn around and when they're in their cell, they're acting completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. No exactly,
0: and and, and a lot of them, are, you know, they're they're very, like I said, Skinner's very very slick,
2: mm-hmm. and he's
0: got his story down pat, and you know, he he tells it and he comes off very earnest, but it, it's a story. And I guess one of the differences between me and a a lot of other people is everything the convicted person says, I take with a grain of salt. And if I can't independently corroborate it with someone who doesn't have any interest or with a contemporaneous document, then I don't believe a word they say. Because... Right. Yeah. The person who's been convicted and is on death row or serving life in prison has the greatest motive to lie about the facts and circumstances of the crime, yeah. of the case, of the trial, of the appellate process.
3: Mhm. You know, so and and a, on.
0: and it's you know, that's that's what frustrates me so much, is because he says he's innocent, he's claimed he's innocent for 20 years well he doesn't have much else to do he's
1: in prison absolutely if you're in prison, you're trying to find ways out of prison I don't care what you say, you don't want to be sitting in prison, I don't care how Mm -hmm. hard you think you are or any of that, you don't want to be sitting in prison
0: right and um, but so, Skinner, Skinner was born in Virginia in 1962. two. Mhm. Uh He was actually about 10 years younger than Twyla. Okay. Because he was 30, uh, 30 going on 30... Wait, 31 going on 32 at the time of the
1: murders. Uh-huh. So, we already learned, you know, he had his own run-ins with the law before he commits the murders on New Year's Eve in 1993. Um I, uh, what was his early criminal past? Was it just, you know, minor <clears throat> stuff like car theft and stuff like that? He
0: he had been convicted of the unauthorized use of a motor vehicle. Um And, you know, this one kind of gives you a glimpse into Skinner um, and the way his mind works. He stole a vehicle. He contacted the owner of the vehicle and said somebody Mm -hmm. else had stolen it. But then he was caught driving it and arrested for it. Wow. Wow. He's one of those people that nothing is ever his fault. Somebody else always did it. And he's just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Well, of course. And then he also had an assault on a police officer, which when he was arrested for the motor vehicle theft, that Mm -hmm. assault on the police officer charge was kind of lumped in with his plea on the, unauthorized use charge okay so he pled guilty but he only served time on the unauthorized use at the time of the murders there were warrants out on him for injury to a child and assault I don't know who the victim was I don't know what the circumstances of those cases were but when he was arrested kind of jumping ahead a little bit and he was informed that he was being arrested on the injury to the child in the assault charge on the assault warrants. He said, is that all? So. (laughs) Lord
1: Jesus, this dude knew it was coming.
0: Yeah. Well, he's, you know, like I said, he's, you know, nothing is ever his fault. He's always just in the wrong place at the wrong time. He didn't really do that. He didn't mean to do it. Um, he kicked out he the uh, sure. he he kicked out the the window of a police car, and you know he didn't mean to do it. He was just trying to move his leg, uh, kicking the police Ooh. officer. He was defending himself because the police officer was kicking him. Oh wow! You know the that kind of that kind of stuff, and um, wow. You know he's he's one of those rare ones I've seen that I've seen enough interviews with him. I would not believe Skinner if his tongue came notarized. To quote a, <laughs> a favorite a favorite statement by Judge Marilyn Million on the People's Court. I would not believe him if his son came notarized.
1: Wow. That's that's hilarious.
0: So Yeah, he's surprised, let's ladies.
1: Take it, let's take it into uh let's take it into the night the murders occurred. What does the state say occurred December thirty first, nineteen ninety three?
0: Twila and Hank had been partying, it was New Year's Eve. They've been partying all day, drinking, taking Xanax, maybe taking codeine, uh, a lot of drinking. They drank vodka, which uh, is quite potent. And about 9.30, they contacted a friend named Harold Howard Mitchell. And they said they wanted to come to his New Year's Eve party, but they needed a ride. And so Howard said, "I'll you know, I'll come get you about 10, 10 15, when he gets to the house in Tampa to pick them up. Hank is passed out on the couch. They try to wake him. He won't wake up. He won't get up. So Twyla leaves with Howard, but she's a little worried because she says, if I go and he wakes up, I'm going to be in trouble. And... Then she, you know, goes to the party. Her uncle was there. There was a strange relationship with her uncle that we'll get into a little bit later. And he was following her around. But she was agitated about leaving Hank and him waking up and finding her gone. Because remember, he was jealous of Howard Mitchell. He didn't want her around Howard Mitchell without him being present. And so she, about 11, between 11 and 11.15, Howard brings her home, gives her a kiss goodnight. She goes into the house. What happened after that, we're not really sure because Twyla, Elwin, and Randy can't tell us. Uh, And Hank isn't going to tell the truth. But he said in a statement to police that he woke up and his vodka bottle was gone. And he figured that Twyla had taken it to the party, which would have pissed him off. Mm-hmm. And so I think Twyla came home. He was awake. The vodka bottle was gone, and she hadn't brought it back, and that there was a fight. Twyla was strangled into unconsciousness or prob- possibly death and then beaten with an axe handle. hmm then apparently Elwyn either came into the living room or was attacked and stabbed in his bedroom. We're not sure. Randy Busby was lying in the top bunk of the bed on his stomach with headphones on and a Walkman, so he probably never woke up. And he was stabbed three times in the back. Elwin made it out of the house and got to a neighbor's porch and collapsed. And the neighbors called police. This is right around midnight. You're right. Police come. They find Elwin. They, they call an ambulance. They get him off to the hospital where he dies at 1245. Uh, so I believe Elwin was actually 23 because his birthday was January 1st.
1: Okay. Um, The
0: police go into the house. They find Twyla dead in the living room. They find Randy dead in his bed. No Hank Skinner. Hank Hank ain't there. Right. While Elwin had gone to a neighbor to try to get help, even though he was mortally injured, Hank walked three and a half, maybe four blocks, to an old girlfriend slash na sponsor's house, demanding to be let into the house. She tells him to go away. He barges into the house. He tells her he's been shot. He's been stabbed. He's been in a fight. He wants her to... He's gotta, she's got to clean him up. She's got to sew up his hand. She doesn't find any stab wounds, any gunshot wounds, but he has a deep cut in his right hand which she helped him stitch up. Um, he's talking nonsense, but at one point, he says, he makes her swear not to tell anybody, swear to God, and then he says, I think I kicked Twilight at." that. Uh-huh. And like I said, this is at midnight. At 3 a.m. is when police finally track him down to uh, Andrea Reed who's the ex-girlfriend right. and a sponsor, uh, three hours later. And at one point, she went to leave the room to go call help. She wanted to call Twyla. She wanted to get him help, and he threatened to kill her if she called anybody. So, you know, he doesn't summon help. He doesn't call an ambulance. He doesn't go next door and tell his neighbors, God, please call the police. Call help. Somebody came in the house and killed everybody. Mm -hmm. He goes off to his girlfriend's house. And when police arrived at 3 a.m., they find Hank Skinner in a closet with no door, hiding behind the clothes. Kind of like, you know, like when a cat puts their head under a blanket and they think if if you can't see their head, you can't see them. They're invisible. Yeah. So, and he was wearing bloody clothes, bloody shirt, bloody—he was wearing bloody pants and bloody socks. He'd taken off his bloody shirt.
1: Yeah, and I cannot wait until we get into his defense because I already see you have it on his defense for uh, what happened. <laughs> that is hilarious. But, yeah. uh, but obviously, we went over some of the evidence there. Uh, and we went over well, the arrest. Yeah. They found him, you know yeah. in the hall in the closet naked. Uh no no no, he was wearing him? his
0: pants and his socks. They were covered in oh. blood. But he was wearing his pants and his socks.
1: I apologize. He was a little decent.
0: <laughs>
1: but uh they find him without a shirt on and things like that. What mm-hmm. other evidence do they have besides obviously, you know, they're going to look at the blood on the uh, pants and socks?
0: Right. Well, I mean, there there's the circumstances. I'm sorry. If you're in a house with three other people and everybody ends up dead but you, and you leave the house and go somewhere else and then try to hide, that's Flight is evidence of a guilty conscience. Flight can be used as evidence of guilt. And, you know, that would be, you know, that that would be flight. And you don't have to get far, you don't have to be gone long. (laughs) If you go from point A to point B and everybody at point A is dead and you're not... And, I mean, all he has is one injury to his hand, which could have been, you know, could have been sustained while he was stabbing Elwin or while he was stabbing Randy. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, that's, you know, the circumstances and then the blood, uh, Twyla's blood, was on his uh, there was a mixture of Twyla's blood and Elwyn's blood on his clothing mm-hmm. there was a mixture of Twyla and Skinner's blood on his shirt and then a mixture of Twyla and Elvin, Elwin on the jeans as well as blood from Elwyn on the jeans Um, There's also the blood spatter on on the clothing. He had blood on the front and blood on the back. And his own blood spatter expert said that's not consistent with what he says happened, which is that he was passed out on the couch asleep or unconscious when whoever came in and murdered everybody but me. Right. Um, Another story that he told police, he told police that Twyla cut him with a knife, that he and Twyla argued over a stick, that uh, he suggested maybe Twyla killed the boys and then was trying to kill me when I killed her. Oh, Lord. So, um, yeah. And uh, pretty much the... The clo- you know, the blood on his clothing and the inconsistent blood spatter. That was that, and that, and the state of Texas. The, the DA did only test the clothing. They didn't test any other other evidence that they gathered at mm-hmm. that time. The defense didn't ask to test it, but we'll get into that part later.
1: All right. Because the defense comes up with the craziest damn theory I've ever heard in my life. But <laughs> anyway,
2: um,
1: let's go ahead and get into the trial. The prosecution's case starts with the DNA. So correct. what is the original DNA that's tested from the close? What's that showing?
0: Well, right. like I said, um, Twyla and Elwin's DNA on... It's described in the opinion as clothing, so it may be spots on the shirt, spots on the pants, on his socks, you know. But it's Twila's blood and Ellen's blood. And so that suggests he was very close to both of them while they were both bleeding. Um, and then there's a mixture of Twila's blood and Skinner's blood on his shirt, which again well, means... He was very near Twila while she was bleeding, and while he was bleeding.
1: Well, of course, and his uh, his defense totally totally addresses all of that, while being completely crazy. Uh, but <laughs> let's talk about Andrea. Uh, wh- what's Andrea? Andrea Reed. It? Andrea
0: yes. Reed is the ex girlfriend and a sponsor. And uh, when police take Skinner away, she gives him a statement. She recounts everything he said, every crazy story he told her. And he did tell her some crazy stories. Um, She recounts how he threatened her, threatened her children, threatened to kill her, how he barged into the trailer, how he needed her help with that cut on his hand. Um, and then she tells her about the swearing to her not to tell anybody that he thought he killed Twila by kicking her to death. Right. And so, right. Um, you know, she was she was kind of the state's star witness because she was able to put a lot of context to what might have happened based on the statements that Skinner had made to her. And the fact that he was Mm. telling her some crazy things that he was like he was trying to come up with a story to explain what happened, but he could never quite settle on one that really worked for him. So he kept testing new ones out. And if if he told her, you know, two Mexicans came to the house to collect a drug debt and she said, oh, come on, Hank, you know that ain't true. Then he would say, okay, okay, I'm going to tell you the truth now. And then he would tell her another one. I caught her in bed with her ex husband, and I punched him in the nose. He was—he well, was trying you know, to—that doesn't was trying explain to her blood, blood, blood all over your clothes. Pardon? Yeah. Me?
1: He was trying to test which um, was lost.
0: Correct. Which ones would? Which ones would slide? And I think, I you know, and I think he's more calculated about that kind of stuff than your average criminal because he took great pride in the fact that he could get away with a lot of stuff you know he might get Brandy. caught but he would never he would never go to prison for anything
2: mm-hmm.
0: so he, he, hey, he's a lot I, more calculating
1: well we're about to get into my favorite part. Uh, the defense. And I yeah. literally have to preface this by what the hell did he like who thought this was a good defense? Honestly. Who really thought this was a good defense? Like, oh well, my god.
0: I think in in a lot of ways defense attorneys sometimes you have to deal with the client from hell and if they are bound and determined to pursue a defense you really don't have a lot of choice you can tell them this is not going to work I promise you this will not work voluntary intoxication is not a defense but that mm-hmm. was what Hank wanted to do and they, they they did they did their their best. They did try really hard. Um, they had a toxicology expert and he extrapolated blood alcohol levels and codeine levels in the blood and, you know, said he would have been in a stupor and he wouldn't have been able to move, he wouldn't have been able to think, he wouldn't have been able been able to strangle Twyla. He wouldn't have been able to inflict the injuries. He wouldn't have been able to see. I mean, you know, they really did. They tried. But then on cross examination, when he's faced with the things that Skinner did, like leaving the house and walking to Andrea Reed's house, then that defense just kind of goes. <laughs> Right, absolutely.
2: Because he was in a near
1: comatose condition from a near lethal dose of codeine and alcohol, and he was able to get up out the house.
0: Well, you know, see, this is the thing, though. The the at the time of his trial, the dose of codeine was not near lethal. His blood alcohol when it was tested at 5.30 in the morning, was about 0.11%. Uh, yeah, his, his blood alcohol was 0.11, which is barely above 0.08, 0.08 intoxication. Well, now,
2: barely Lowry extrapolated
0: away. it to about three times. Intoxication. However, Skinner was an alcoholic.
2: Right. So, so a point like, two
0: four to an alcoholic is not what point two four would be to me because I'm not a big drinker. Right. A point two four with me would probably be falling down drunk. Uh, quite a mess because a lot of things don't work properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: But
3: you, I, I, I don't won't
0: go into any detail but anybody who's been on a bender can you can imagine. But yeah, I believe most Hank Skinner most he's an alcoholic. He's been drinking vodka all day long. And you know, I have my little too. Friday nights. I have three vodkas and I'm I'm fine. I'm happy. I'm buzzed, and I'm done. Here's
1: my, here's my new favorite, though. And I'm kind of skipping ahead a little bit, but I do have to go ahead and jump this out here. He's colorblind, so of course he couldn't have killed her.
0: Well, no, no, no. Again, you the problem with Wikipedia is that, you know, anybody can put anything anywhere. Mm-hmm. The color blindness is a new thing. He didn't present this color blind. Accidentally picked up Twila's cup. Um, you know, in fact, he he admitted to taking Xanax that day, but claims he didn't take codeine. But he has 0.11 milligrams of codeine in his blood at five thirty something a.m. And his toxicologist said. He could have taken the codeine after the murders because of the cut on his hand. Um, there's also with the, the, the alleged allergy to codeine, Skinner was not mm-hmm. exhibiting any signs of any kind of allergic reaction to codeine at the time of his arrest.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you have to remember, drug seekers... When they go to an emergency room or they see a doctor, they will say, I am allergic to codeine because codeine doesn't pack enough of a punch. Mm-hmm. And they want to get a more narcotic pain reliever. Okay.
1: Makes sense.
0: And so there was testimony from, from Skinner's ex-wife at some point during the process. I'm not quite sure whether it was during the trial or, or in a later uh, a later action, that he always said that he was allergic to codeine because he didn't like it because it wasn't strong enough. Right. So, um, but he, you know, like I said, he, was, he said he was allergic. He may have believed he was allergic, but he wasn't exhibiting an allergic reaction. Right, And when you are allergic, I'm allergic, legitimately allergic, because I get a rash on my inside forearm and upper arm. And it won't go away until the codeine is out of my bloodstream. Right. Um, But I don't have an anaphylactic reaction, and I don't have an... an elevated, quote, narcotic effect, which is what he's trying to claim. Because he was allergic, it was more powerful for him than it would have been for anybody else. And, again, you know, that hasn't been my experience. Um, But you have to be careful when you are allergic to anything. If you get a rash... The second time you take it the rash might be worse and the third time you take it, you might go into anaphylaxis. Which is swelling You're of up. the tongue, the throat, the air passages, and you die if you don't have epinephrine. hmm So, um but he he's never been formally diagnosed with an allergy. He claimed an allergy, but given his drug history that may have been, in order to obtain stronger, narcotic pain medications, to feed his high. Mm-hmm. So, like I so, said, the, the whole colorblind, drank of glass. That's all. That's a later invention.
1: Right, twenty ten. Now. After the murders, his claim is that he was uh, woken up off the couch by one of the victims, uh, Scooter. And, of course, Correct. Scooter uh, died on the porch of Twilight.
0: No, he died on the now, neighbor's porch. But He died in the hospital. He collapsed on the neighbor's porch. And I believe okay. when police got there, he was unconscious and was not able to tell police anything about what had happened or who had done it. Mhm. But um he right. had been stabbed. He had some superficial wounds on his abdomen and his arms. But he also had a deep stab wound that punctured his lung under his left arm.
1: Right, right.
0: So, you know, he was he so, was in pretty bad shape. He had muscular dystrophy, mhm uh, so i don't I don't believe that he roused Skinner again. that's Skinner's version of what happened
3: right. That
0: he was totally unconscious, and after it's all over with, he's totally unconscious, and the killer yeah. doesn't come and get him first.
1: Right. Nor does all Make, these people who you know are probably screaming bloody murder from being murdered mm-hmm. wake him up.
0: I I don't know that, you know, I don't know necessarily if, if Skinner and Twyla had a volatile relationship the way I suspect that they probably did. Amen. I don't know that, you know, Elwin would have seen them fighting again. And remember, you know, Twila's daughter left the house that night because she was afraid of what Skinner might do. Right. That's the kind of day it had been with them drinking all right. day and doing drugs all day. So, yeah, um,
1: it was a scary situation to say the least.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Especially for for a uh, child.
0: Yeah. Yeah, like but, uh, I said, I think she was between eleven and and maybe fourteen. I can't remember. I don't remember what her age was in nineteen ninety three, but she was, you know, relatively young.
1: So what's the deal? Who's Uncle Bobby?
0: Okay, um, and one of the other claims Skinner had made was that he had a prior injury to his hand that would have prevented him from being able to strangle Twila. I call BS on that one. Um, and it just happens to be the same hand that he cut, you know, when he was stabbing somebody. Uh, uncle Bobby, Bobby Robert Donnell was Twyla's maternal uncle. Um, I believe her mother had four brothers, and Robert was one of them. Uh, again, they were originally from Oklahoma. Robert Donnell, at the time of the murder would have been 62 years old uh, because he was born in May 5th, 1930. Right. Robert Donald was all of five feet tall and weighed 185 pounds at the time he was in the Oklahoma Department of Corrections. And God bless Oklahoma because their DOC... Any inmate who's been incarcerated, you can find them, no matter how long it's been since they were incarcerated. Right, Um, right. So, uh, yeah, so he's the, uh, quote, real killer. Now, he and Twilight did have an odd relationship. Remember, he's her maternal uncle. But there may have been a consensual relationship between them, and/or it may have been a forced relationship between them. Again, unfortunately, Twilight's not here to speak for herself, so different people speak for her, and different stories go around. Um, right. But uh, he was following her around at the party, and he was known to be volatile and violent. But none of the neighbors, nobody puts him at the house the night of December 31st. And in fact, Skinner has never said Bobby Donald was there. Look at Uncle Bobby. It was Uncle Bobby. I saw Uncle Bobby. He never, ever said that. Never once in all these years. Even though he claims the real killer is the one who cut him on the hand. Although he also says he fell and cut it on glass. Um, And I'm sure 12 years ago he had some other story. But he's never said Bobby Donald was there. Uncle Bob or Uncle Bobby, I can't remember what they called him. But, um, yeah, yeah. so he's the alternate suspect. But, you know, keep in mind, he's five feet tall and weighed 185 pounds when he was in Department well, I- of Corrections in Oklahoma in, I'm going to say, 1988.
1: As you can also expect, because let's be honest, it's a uh, defense mechanism that is all too often used. Of course, there's a shoddy investigation and a failure to test the stuff. It's a big conspiracy. Right.
0: Right. Well, what we also have to remember, and I I don't hear this being mentioned at all, um, in 1993, 1994, when these murders occurred, and 1995 when the case was tried. Not DNA testing was still something that was only done by a few private entities at a great cost. For each item that you tested, you're looking at maybe $2500, $3000, $3500. Jesus. And so the prosecution elected to test only the clothing that Skinner was wearing at the time he was arrested. They didn't test a lot of the other evidence that they collected from other places in the house. They did test the knives. There was a knife in a, a plastic bag in the living room. And then there was another knife on the porch outside. And they uh-huh. didn't test those things. They just tested the clothes. But again, at a cost of a couple, three thousand, four thousand dollars per piece of evidence, I don't think that's an irresponsible,
2: uh,
0: you know, decision. Especially given that, yes, they're going to focus on Skinner. He lived in the house. He was present in the house. He admits to being present in the house. In his right. statements to the police, he hints, admits, acknowledges that he may have killed Twyla. Uh-huh. He never wants to admit to killing the boys, but he admits that he might have killed Twyla. And he tells stories that, you know, and, and one of the stories he told, as I mentioned earlier, he said, well, maybe Twyla killed the boys and then I killed Twyla because right. she was trying to like kill yourself. me. Mm, mm-hmm. correct. And so, um, you know, of course that they're gonna focus on Skinner. Uh they did right. they did investigate Uncle Bob. hmm And while media articles and defense attorneys claim nobody knows where Uncle Bob was, um, there's never been any evidence that linked him to the house at the time of the murders. You know there's no DNA from Uncle Bob or unknown DNA on Skinner's clothing when he's arrested right, and one would expect if he's there and somebody else is doing the killing, why wouldn't he have their blood when they cut themselves
1: absolutely absolutely you know so
0: so um. I can't
1: Absolutely none of it works, I'm assuming, because because we know what happens. So real quick, briefly, before we go to uh, commercial break, let's talk about the uh, penalty phase. Was there really any fireworks in this, or did we know right off top, Uh, did they know that they were going for the death penalty?
0: Well, you know, it's it's kind of funny because uh, one of the claims Skinner has never really made was any error made during his punishment phase aside from alleging a uh, conflict of interest against the attorney as to the aggravating factors of his criminal record, proving future dangerousness. So I don't know what really went on at the penalty phase. I'm sure Skinner put on some family to plead for his life. Um mm-hmm. and I'm sure there, you know, he he claimed to be a devoutly really religious man. Uh, so, you know, there probably was a pastor here, you know, here or there who came in and, and said he could do great good in in prison, you know, spare his life, but um with his criminal record and his numerous Unadjudicated brushes with the law, um, he ended up being sentenced to death
1: right, right. Well, Lisa, when we come back, we're going to pick up with the appeal process and the direct appeal that uh, sperm directly from this case and go right up until today for the last hour of clear and convincing tonight. Uh, We'll be right back uh, with more Clear and Convincing right here on Talk Radio 49.
2: Are you looking for the best deals for your vaping and accessories? Then check out the guides at Sub-Own Vapors. With daily specials on a wide selection of mods and juices, they will surely become your one-stop shop. Ray and the guys at sub Vapors located at 6929 JFK Boulevard, Suite C in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Want to see you? Join them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. But more importantly, visit the store or call 501-392-6487. sub Vapors. Vape it like you built it.
0: Are we back?
1: Yes, ma'am. We sure are.
0: All right. Um, I'm outside at the moment.
2: Okay, okay.
0: (laughs) Well,
1: (laughs) I caught you outside smoking. Um, Mm -hmm. So we get to the direct appeal here on uh, Mr. Skinner. Uh, Once again, this is... uh, this is the one that is automatic, right? Like he doesn't have to request it? Correct.
0: Correct. It's automatic on a capital case. It is a direct appeal, and it is meant to challenge the conviction and sentence and Mm -hmm. any errors that occurred during trial, such as omission of evidence, uh, that was not relevant or inadmissible or objectionable in some other way, um, uh-huh. Failure to admit certain evidence and those kind of those kind of things that happened during a trial. Um, and Skinner's appeal was relatively simple. Uh, the first issue was he felt that the evidence while it was sufficient to prove that he killed Twyla and Elwin, was not sufficient to prove that he killed Randy. So, so he should get a whole new trial.
1: He basically admits, yeah, I killed Twyla and Elwin, but I didn't kill Randy.
0: Well, you know, it's an, it's an interesting position that he, um, excuse me, hang on just a sec. Okay. Um, I had Goodbye. my cat trying to eat my headphone cord which would have been very bad. Um, yeah. So that's, you know, guest appearance by Tigger. Um, so he uh, <laughs> he's acknowledging that it's, the evidence is sufficient to, that he killed Twyla and Elwin, which is interesting, given the fact that he had claimed he was totally innocent. He didn't do this. And the appeal was handled by a a different attorney, not the same one who uh, handled his defense at the trial. Okay. And then another issue that he raised was that during the testimony of his toxicology expert, the state learned of some notes that the expert had written of some questions that he wanted to discuss with the defense attorneys to try and, and clarify some of the things that, you know, issues that he had come or recognized during his review of the prosecutor's materials. Mm-hmm. And so the prosecution and the defense argued whether or not those things were admissible, whether they were work product, which is protected from disclosure. And the judge ended up ruling that it was admissible because he was testifying and they could be a basis for his testimony. Right. So the, um, the judge ordered that the notes be produced. And they were pretty um, – were very interesting. And I'll, I'll post them on the WordPress page. Um, but they are questions he had come up with uh, during his review. And so the state was able to use those questions in their cross examination. Okay. Um, and now the Court of Criminal Appeals did find that the, the notes should not have been disclosed.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: But that basically it was a harmless error because while the notes were a factor during the cross examination, the cross examination was thorough. And covered areas that weren't covered in the notes. Such as saying, well, he walked three and a half to four blocks to Andrea Reed's house. Could he have done this if he was, you know, in a stupor? And of right. course, the expert had to say, no, I can't believe he did that.
1: Right, absolutely. I couldn't imagine
3: walking three
0: and a half. Uh, oh, my goodness. That's. Yeah, three and a half. In a little the little dark. Little. At yeah. night. At midnight. In little old Pampa, was, Texas, where the sidewalk is war- is uh, probably rolled up at nine yeah, o'clock.
1: Even on New Year's Eve. Used, this is before widely used uh, lighting outside, too, in the dark. Streetlight
3: stuff,
1: Mm -hmm. but uh, I mean, obviously he's not he's not successful in his direct appeal, so he initiates the second phase, right? The state post conviction.
0: Yes, he he initiated, but I could not find a lot of information. Apparently, his attorney. Who was hen- who had handled the direct appeal was trying to get witnesses, and so his mm-hmm. attorney was able to secure a recantation from Andrea Reed with help from David Protus or Protus and the Medill Innocence Project at Northwestern University. Right. who we talked about during the out- with the outsourced bombing case. And um, right. Right. so they came in, and they were able to get some uh, information about the sheriff at the jail, uh, a, a former jailer who claimed that the sheriff was copying privileged mail and giving it to the prosecutor, and a few things like that. But it looks as though he missed his deadline to file his state post-conviction claims Mm -hmm. and then tried to file a federal post-conviction claim, which was then stayed to go back to state court. And I don't know whether he actually, I think only one issue, the issue regarding Dr. Lowry's note, was the only issue that was addressed at state post-conviction level. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, that was, again, it was an error, but it wasn't one that had an impact on the conviction.
1: Right, right. Because... tell, Tell me, why does Andrea Reed recant her statement? Was she bullied into this? Well,
0: judging judging by uh, the reputation of Mr. Protest, Mm -hmm. I am sure that the journalism students that she spoke to uh, when she was interviewed perhaps suggested that police coerced her, perhaps offered her remuneration, with books and movie deals when they free Hank Skinner from prison. Right. And so she said, yeah, this officer threatened to arrest me. This officer told my neighbors, my apartment was, my trailer was a crime scene. This other officer told me if I testified, they wouldn't subpoena my daughter to testify. And then she said that... um the DA, uh, John Mann, thre- made threats and gave her a script and told her what to say and that another uh, district attorney who was assisting him in trying a case gave her a script to follow during her testimony. Oh, wow. And that, so you know, everything... See everything she said at trial was a lie. Everything she said, said in her police statements was li- were lies. And um, that, uh, you know, everything she said, you know, Hank Skinner told her a lot of stories, and she knew none of them were true, and they, they got taken out of context at the trial. They weren't as bad as they sounded, kind of. Mm-hmm. And Ms. Reed actually ended up before a grand jury, because what she was doing was she was admitting perjury not only in the context of the statements to police, but also in her trial testimony. Right. And Gray County officials were contemplating charging her with perjury.
2: Hmm.
0: Uh, I don't know whether that actually happened. And the attorney representing her was the same attorney who was representing Skinner at that time.
1: Okay. That's definitely so like to me.
0: Yeah, because, you know, he's, he's going to represent her, but he's the one who's putting her in jeopardy as far as the right. criminal charges go. Because... Um, uh, he's getting her to admit to perjury, right? She perjured in a sworn statement
1: mm-hmm. under
0: oath. So, um, so All that yeah, that die. didn't. But like I said, Skinner had missed the deadline for the state post-conviction because generally, once once your your conviction and sentence become final. After direct appeal, and/or after the U.S. Supreme Court declines uh, a writ, you have a certain period of time within which to file a state post-conviction. But I will—I'll uh, look if I can find anything on it uh, over the weekend, and I'll—I'll I'll go into that on the uh, update show.
1: Well, and, you know, Skinner actually said the phone cable was jerked out of the wall and nobody could call anybody from the crime scene. So, I mean. Um, yeah. Um, uh, was
0: w- was his tongue notarized when he said that?
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you
0: know, I mean, he, can, he can say a lot of things now, 20, you know, 18 years, 17 years, 20 years down the road. Because it's gonna be hard for us to go back and uh refute or confirm things like that
1: right absolutely I mean it, you know i I mean no one guy. may
0: have been going to a neighbor's house because he was afraid to stay in the house and try to use the phone. Maybe that's mm-hmm. when Skinner was in killing Randy because there are blood uh There's blood on the door of the boy's bedroom leading to a utility room that leads out to the backyard. Skinner also Mm -hmm. says he was going to the party to get help from the men there. Ask me if I believe that.
1: Do you believe that? (laughs)
0: No. (laughs) No.
1: So he gets some <laughs> DNA tested, or I'm assuming it was him who wanted this DNA tested in 2000, 2001. Uh,
0: he, he had been requesting DNA testing, but um, John Mann was still the DA, and he was not um, exactly – hit to that, but he did take some evidence and submit it for testing.
1: Right. And obviously it didn't and come back favorable to Skinner.
0: No, it didn't come back very favorable to Skinner. Um, what they were able to do was do some DNA testing on um, some of the hairs. And it's not really clear from gene screen from the reports whether they were testing blood on the hairs it looks like they may have been testing blood on the hairs and blood on the surfaces of other objects Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah what they found was on a blue notebook on the cover was Twila's blood and then her Mm -hmm. blood on a hair from her back a hair from her left hand and a hair from the axe handle, Skinner's blood on a cigarette butt, and then a mixture on a hair from Twyla's right hand, Twyla and Skinner. Right. Now, Skinner claims this mixture was Twyla and an unknown male, but I've downloaded the gene screen reports, and it's very clear. It's Twilight and Skinner. And it was never retracted or amended or changed in subsequent reports. Now they did find a mixture on a cassette tape with blood and gauze uh, with a blood stain on it that weren't known, were unknown. However, they did not receive Elwyn or Randy's blood when they did this testing. And so the unknowns could be Elwin or Randy or both because they only received reference samples from Twyla and Skinner. And again, this is 2000. So we're probably looking at pretty steep costs. Uh, I don't believe Texas Department of Public Safety was doing that type of testing at that time. You there, Michael? Okay. I'll well, I'll enough. just keep on the talking then. Oh, there you are. <laughs>
1: to a muted phone. Yeah, I'm here. I'm just sitting here trying to... I hate when that on.
0: happens. Yeah, of
1: course. It's, <laughs>
0: and it's always fun. If you forget. Then they found, you know, Twila's Twyla blo- blood on her own right hand. Um, mm mm-hmm. And then... Uh, let's see. They had some hairs where there was no result from the DNA testing. And... Um, Again, you know, the gauze and a cassette tape, the two unknown individuals, it was a mixture on the cassette tape, and an unknown male on the gauze, but they didn't have reference samples from Randy or L1. And then they did mtDNA DNA testing, and uh, the hair in Twyla's right hand on a paper towel around the cassette tape, and two hairs from a tape on the bedroom, back bedroom door did not exclude Twyla or her maternal relatives, her children, her mother, her siblings, her maternal Mm -hmm. aunts and uncles. And then there were inconclusive results on a hair from the living room and a hair from Twyla's right hand. And those were the 2000-2001 results. Again, limited testing uh, sent out by the defense. Um, It's not really exculpatory because when you look in context, if they don't have Elwin and Randy's reference samples, then the unknowns aren't really potential third parties. The Mm -hmm. unknowns are potentially Randy or Elwin, or both. Right. Right.
1: If there's 30 potentials, then...
0: Yeah. Right. So, right. But again, I I I suspect it was the cost. He was sending it to gene screen. It wasn't being done by the DPS uh-huh. for whatever reason. I think that they could only do HLA DQ alpha. They couldn't do uh, RFLP or uh, STR or any kind of PCR based. Uh, extraction amplification techniques.
1: Okay, okay, okay. So we go from the DNA testing to the federal habeas, and once again, Reed's right. recantation is brought up again, as well Correct. as Uncle Bobby is brought up as well. Correct. Uh, Correct. These are things, you know, they had already brought up. Uh, what were they trying to accomplish bringing them up again?
0: Well, because he hadn't really had any meaningful review at the state level, because he missed the deadline and his claims were um, basically dismissed uh, on procedural grounds, The Mm -hmm. federal court granted him a hearing so that he could present all these claims and challenge his conviction in federal court without having had it reviewed by state court. Right. And so that was what he got. Um, It did not go well for him because uh with Andrea Reed's recantation, they were able to bring in one of her neighbors who testified under oath that at three to four o'clock in the morning on January first, nineteen ninety four Reed was hysterical and she told her neighbor that Skinner had barged into her house and threatened her and her children. Right. Another friend of hers, who's also Skinner's ex-wife, testified under oath at the federal hearing that Reed had come to her house between 8 and 8.30 a.m. on January 1st and practically broke down the door. Reed was shaking and crying because she was frightened. She told neighbors that Skinner was at her house, told her he thought he'd killed Twyla and the boys, wanted her to sew up his hand. And threatened her and her children if she told anyone or called anyone. Um, uh, the the friend and and ex wife also testified that Reed did not say anything about threats or coercion from police,
2: mm-hmm. which is what
0: she had claimed in you know her recanted statements. Right. And then Jessica Reed. Her uh, Andrea Reed's daughter had given a statement in January of 1994, and she said she didn't remember anything from that time, but that she had told the truth in her statement, and everything in her statement from January 1st, 1994, corroborated Reed's statements to police about everything that had happened from the time Skinner arrived at the trailer until police took him away. Right. So So, it totally refuted her mother's, you know, sudden claim of coercion and Um, threats. And I, I know a lot of people won't place any faith in this, but the police officers that were named by Reed as having threatened her and coerced her, as well as the two prosecutors testified. And they denied all of her allegations. Um, The prosecutor, John Mann, testified that one of the claims that Andrea Reid made was that she was a prisoner in her hotel in Fort Worth during the trial, that they wouldn't let her go anywhere, they wouldn't let her talk to anybody, they wouldn't let her do anything. Well, Mr. Mann testified that the hotel or motel uh, in Fort Worth where they were staying during the trial was in a bad part of town and that everybody staying there was cautioned not to go out after dark and to be cautious when they were out. And he also testified that there had been a shooting near the motel during the trial. Uh, One of the officers, Connie Lockridge, Testified that she had viewed Reed as a victim because she was frightened and worried about the safety of herself and her children. And Katie Gerhardt, who was another officer accused by Reed of threats and coercion, uh, testified that Reed was nervous and pacing on January 1, 1994, and that she kept trying to tell officers things, and they would tell her, It's okay you're going to be able to make a statement.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: And that when they were in Fort Worth, Reed expressed fear of Skinner having her murdered and asked Gerhardt to stay with her. So um, like I said, I know nobody's going to put any stock in what the police and prosecutors say because one of the most maddening things about case discussions is the claim police lie all the time. Prosecutors lie all the time. Uh-huh. But, you know, again, you take it for what it's worth. Ironically, it wasn't the police and the prosecutors that the federal court believed was lying. It was Andrea Reed. Um, The judge found none of her allegations to be at all credible.
3: Mm -hmm.
1: Well, we already talked about the recantation. you know, Uncle Bobby we obviously have referenced, Mm -hmm. and this allergy to coding, you know, we went into detail about where – really, it seems like he's bringing the same stuff up over and over again. I mean – the failure yeah. to test evidence. That's really yeah. the first
0: That was actually that no.
1: <laughs>
0: that was an allegation made against his defense attorney, uh, Mr. Comer. I can't remember oh, his really? first name at the moment. Yeah. Well, this because is basically awesome. what, what Skinner's, what David protests and Skinner's new attorneys, Robert Owen is among them, uh, what they said is that, Skinner's defense attorney should have tested everything. Part of the reason for that is because the Texas DNA statute initially enacted had a, uh, I guess, a requirement. If DNA testing was available at the time you were tried and you elect not to test DNA, then you could not get post-conviction testing. Okay. And the rationale behind that when DNA was first coming into use was as one justice put it in an opinion um, perhaps even in Skinner's case the legislature did not want criminal defendants laying behind a log at their trials and not testing things and then after they're convicted and their direct appeals are, are unsuccessful coming back and say, Hey, I'm entitled to DNA testing. Right. And, you know, I don't find that to be an unreasonable thing. It has since been amended and that particular provision has been taken out. Mm-hmm. But um, they, they did criticize Uh, Mr. Comer, for not testing things. The problem is that while they argue seeing the defense tested, the results would have been secret. They wouldn't have had had to disclose them. And while that may be true, if they requested certain pieces of evidence to be tested, the prosecution could test that same evidence. So if they said we want to test the knife, the prosecution could test the knife too. And right. then have and what Comer testified to in the in the federal hearings was he didn't want to get give the prosecution any more inculpatory DNA test results given the already inculpatory nature of what they did test. And his strategy was to criticize them for not testing more and pointing to right. that failure to test as a shoddy investigation technique. And the federal court okay. found that was a valid strategy. Right. Like I said, anything, anything the defense tested, the state could have tested too and then gotten right. more inculpatory results. Skinner might have been able to keep his results Although, it kind of bothers me that it's okay for defense attorneys to request testing or request access to evidence to perform their own testing and not to have to share those results. If it's supposed to be about truth, then let the chips fall where they may. But don't say it's about truth if you want to do things in secret and not release your results.
1: Right, absolutely. I completely, I completely agree. Agree with that. Uh, yeah. E- e- no, no evidence should, you know, be one sided in that aspect. Right. Where's the conflict right. of interest? And in before we leave the federal habeas,
0: Mister. Mr. Comer had been the DA in Gray County at Uh the time of Skinner's earlier convictions. And so they alleged that, especially during the penalty phase, this was a conflict of interest because Comer could not call into question the convictions that he obtained through his office. Um, the little bit that I've been able to find, Comer did not actually handle the prosecution of the the assault on the officer and the uh, theft of the motor vehicle charges. He was oh, the wow. DA. But, you know, if you watch Law and Order, he was kind of like Adam Schiff or Arthur Branch sitting in his chair in his office and giving everybody their marching orders and giving him advice and, you know, uh, you know, being their conscience if he didn't like what they were doing. Uh, But he wasn't in the trenches in the courtroom prosecuting Henry Skinner. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, that was not successful. Uh, It's not unusual for people to work in prosecutor's offices for a decade or more. And then go to work for the public defender, right, or to set up a very successful criminal defense practice in the same jurisdiction, and yeah, there was a question as to whether um, Skinner may have even waived the conflict of interest because when a former prosecutor is appointed to represent him, you know, he may have been given something. Skinner certainly did not prove uh, that he didn't waive it, although the state wasn't able to produce any documentation that proved he He did. did. So it it became kind of a, a, like I said, a gray area that, there's no proof that he did, no proof that he didn't. It's heavily disputed, and but in the analysis, the court, uh, the federal district court, just didn't find that there was an actual conflict, right, and right. actually felt that Comer and his co counsel did the best job that they could do given what they had to work with. Okay. Okay. So. And I want to so, go back to Uncle Bobby for one minute because there's something that's going to come up that I, I've got to get out there. Um, a neighbor of Bobby Donald. Now, Bobby Donald, I think in 1994, or maybe 1995, perhaps even before Skinner's trial, Donald was killed in a drunk driving accident on I-40 in okay. Texas or Oklahoma. So. He was not around to defend himself. But uh, a neighbor of his who was also a caretaker for Donald's wife testified regarding some statements that the wife had repeated that Donald had allegedly made, which were double hearsay, and also testified to witnessing a couple of days after the murder, Donald taking everything out of the truck, the seats, the carpet, everything you could take out of the truck. He took it out and he thoroughly washed the interior of the truck. And um, he was also, she testified about his violent character and he was known to carry a knife and he was volatile. Um, But a lot of the testimony she gave was not really that different from testimony that was submitted through other witnesses at the trial.
2: Uh-huh. Because
0: this, all of this was raised and fingers were pointed at Uncle Bob at the trial. Uh, but two things that came out that kind of diminished her value to the defense to Skinner and increased her value to the state was that she did not observe any blood in Donald's truck after right. the murders, when he was cleaning it. And she testified honestly when she was asked, did you, could you see in the truck? Did you see any blood? No. Um, she also described a jacket that Donald wore as a tan jacket. And so that you have some cliff notes here, keep in mind, tan jacket, Donald was five feet tall. All right. Okay. You got me?
1: I got you. I got you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, you know, we're an hour and 43 minutes into this, and we're finally going to have Skinner win one. Uh, Skinner versus Switzer. This was in 2009. The defense team filed a complaint in uh, federal court against Lynn Switzer for refusing to release evidence that uh, – the defense could use for private DNA testing and actually uh, Skinner brought it under a civil rights law claiming that DNA testing was too restrictive and it was actually affirmed affirmed by the Supreme Court in 2011. So Skinner actually picked up a victory here. Well,
0: kind of, sort of, but not really. Um, the Supreme Court did not say he had a right to DNA testing. Mm
2: -hmm. The Supreme
0: Court did not say, Lynn Switzer, you have to grant his request for DNA testing. The Supreme Court didn't even say, Texas, you cannot evaluate DNA testing requests in the way that you want to evaluate them. All the Supreme Court said was that Skinner or some other uh party convicted person could mm-hmm. in theory challenge denial of dna testing requests under 1983
1: okay so they didn't necessarily but it's, say it's kind of you
0: them. know it's kind of a a, a hollow victory you know, basically, all they said was that the district, federal district court, and the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeal were wrong that you can't use 1983 to challenge so, denial of DNA testing. You can. But as to the merits so, of his DNA testing request, Supreme Court did not address that.
1: So, was Texas Senate Bill 122? a direct correlation to this decision?
0: I believe that, yes, that is when the fault provision was removed for failure to test DNA at the time of trial. Right. Correct. That is that is the one thing, um, like I said, but the merits of his claims for DNA testing were not addressed or or dealt with by the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: Okay. Only hey, that really
0: his attorneys were able, basically his attorneys were able to craft, because we saw in uh, Kevin Cooper, he tried a 1983 claim against Michael Ramos and multiple individuals in San Bernardino County, and he was not successful. But the problem was that his attorneys did not craft their claims in the same way that Skinner's attorneys were able to craft his.
1: Right. Right. So – Basically, he's maintaining that the decision to not test certain pieces wasn't his. He says that it was uh, Comer that made the decision because he thought it would criminate him.
0: And, right, and and again, you know, this is an example. And the, the fact that he keeps rehashing these claims over and over and over again. And, you know, he brings up new information and he finds new witnesses and he keeps rehashing things. And he ignores anything that doesn't um, historically work for him. Look. Too drunk and stone to kill did not work for you at trial. It Absolutely. is not going to. Con- it's not going to work for you on post conviction. It's not going to. It's going to work for you in the media because you know nobody's really going to think about what you're saying and what pieces don't fit, he ignores the three and a half, four block walk to Andrea Reed's. He claims to have been falling. He probably will claim it took him three hours to get there. Even though that's not true. <laughs> he got there yeah. at midnight because that's what, you know, Andrea Reed and her daughter both said he got there at midnight. So it took him about two right. minutes to walk the three and a half, four blocks. But, um, right. yeah, that's, like I said, that's a, an example of ignoring anything inculpatory and pretending it just doesn't exist. Like the blood all over his clothing.
1: Right. From Absolutely. From
0: Twilight and Elwood. So, so in
1: 2014, he gets uh, some more DNA tested. The right. knife's tested, Elwyn and Randy's yeah. room is tested, and the doors. Now, question. Correct. Elwin and Randy's room as well as the doors being tested, wouldn't that evidence have been destroyed quite a while ago?
0: Well, what they did was when they were processing the house, they were swabbing if they saw blood on a door frame they would swab it and they would put the swab in a, a an evidence bag and they would say door frame elwin and randy's room or door frame back bedroom or door frame living room uh-huh and then it was the swab not the frame of the door itself but the evidence was taken from the frame of the door or from the blanket or uh, different areas of the boy's bedroom. And I wanted to say that after Switzer, the state did agree to this additional testing. And the state did agree to test these things that Skinner wanted to see tested. Uh huh. So, this is what they found. Um, a hair in the right hand of Twyla Busby was a partial mitochondrial DNA result, and it didn't exclude Skinner. Right. Cassette tape in the boy's bedroom. Blood two partial profiles, probably from two different spots on the tape. Mm-hmm. Skinner partial profile
2: right.
0: so okay, let's I won't say it was Skinner. it didn't exclude him right um, tennis shoe in the boys' bedroom, two spots Skinner didn't uh-huh. exclude him. Comforter in the boys' bedroom, nuclear DNA profile. Skinner, not excluded. Dresser in the boys' bedroom, partial nuclear DNA profile. Skinner, not excluded. Handprint on the doorframe of the boys' bedroom. Skinner, not excluded. Cassette tape holder in the boys' bedroom. Skinner, not excluded. Doorknobs. I think of the kitchen. One going to a utility room. Skinner, not excluded. Now this is blood on these objects. This isn't touch DNA or anything like that. This is blood on these objects. Right. Although there may be some touch DNA. I'm not, you know, I'm not hundred percent sure. Um, I've ordered yeah. records from the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals. Uh, back door, Skinner, not excluded, partial nuclear DNA profile. They took six swabs from the knife found on the front porch in 1994 and two swabs in 2012 at the base and handle. All of that DNA belongs to Skinner. Okay. Again, cause him partial profiles, so we'll say he's not excluded.
1: Right. right. There's
0: also a mixture of DNA of Elwin, Randy, and Skinner. And then I believe there's a second knife or another spot on the same knife, um, a mixture of, skinny, of Skinner and an unidentified contributor. Now, they did find some um, contamination, because remember, in 1993, 1994, touch DNA was like, it was Star Trek, man. We're never going to be able to do that. So once evidence was processed, it was no longer handled with gloves in a lot of jurisdictions. So... Um, they also tested the uh, evidence taken from Twila's body. They uh, on the vaginal swabs with Twila, they found no semen and they only found her DNA. Finger mm-hmm. clipping, fingernail clippings, only Twila's DNA. A dish towel that was in the um, bag with a knife, which I don't think was involved in the murders, was Twila's DNA. A doorstop molding in the boys' bedroom had Twyla's DNA. A carpet Mm -hmm. at the entrance to the kitchen had Twyla's DNA. Mm -hmm. A blanket in the boys' bedroom had Randy's DNA in three different stains. A carpet in the boys' bedroom had Randy's DNA, Uh, two partial profiles which didn't exclude Randy. And then... Uh, again, on the knife, uh, one of the stains was Randy was the major contributor and then Skinner and Elwin were minor contributors. So, um,
1: let's, let's, uh, let's go ahead and take a pause point and say things aren't looking good for Skinner.
0: No, they are not. And Elwin's DNA was found on the knife. Elwin's uh, DNA was found on his underwear. Uh, his DNA was found on the comforter on a comforter in the boy's bedroom, a door on the interior of the bedroom, and three spots on the carpet in the boy's bedroom. There mm-hmm. were two unknown profiles on a carpet to the entry of the boy's bedroom. Uh, and there were no Codis hits when they uploaded the unknown profile. They were two. They were unknown two unknown profiles. They weren't one unknown profile in two different places. So it's two unknown profiles, and there were some um, instances, like I said, of contamination. So the unknown profiles on that carpet. Maybe from uh-huh. a juror or a, a, an evidence technician some point during the testing process, who breathed in the room where the carpet sample was being examined, because that's how some of the contamination occurred, uh, which is very interesting. That's how sensitive DNA recovery has become. Right, And that's why now we're seeing before we saw either nothing or DNA and now we're seeing DNA and mixtures and minor and major contributors um, because and sometimes unknown minor contributors and that's because the methods are becoming more, more sensitive. So so there's basically, um, you know, there's no exclusion of the victims and Skinner, any of this evidence that was tested. And on the unknown profile, it's not a single unknown profile. It's two individual unknown profiles that don't hit in which means... They don't belong to a criminal whose DNA has been uploaded.
1: Okay, okay. So, there's two more pieces of evidence before we get out of here. The lost jacket and some hairs. Right. Uh, What are those?
0: Okay, on the lost jacket, in pictures... Uh, With Twila's body, you see a gray jacket, and Mm -hmm. it is a men's large or maybe even extra large 44, 46. Skinner describes it, and that's his counsel described it. It was taken into evidence, but it was never subjected to any testing, and it does have blood spatter on uh, the sleeves. However,
3: okay.
0: it could have been hanging on a door frame while Twyla was being beaten and could have gotten a medium-velocity blood spatter. Skinner argues that Killer was wearing it and got the medium-velocity blood spatter. He also says that the jacket is far too large for him that he would use it as a pup tent 'Cause he's only about five eight. Right. Um and so it couldn't have been his. But guess what? It couldn't have been Bobby Donald's either. Because remember, what? Bobby is five feet tall, hundred and eighty five pounds.
2: hmm. He's not so gonna be a wearing
0: not. a men's large or extra large jacket forty-four, forty-six. Now, Elwin and Randy were both six feet tall. Elwin, I believe, was like six-five.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And Randy was somewhere in the six-foot, six six-two, six-three range. So, right. it's a gray jacket, not a tan jacket, which is what Donald's neighbor describes. But they're claiming this lost jacket that's a size 44 or 46, men's extra large or large, belonged to Bobby Donald, a five-foot-tall man. Uh Uh-huh. He could use that as one of those two-person tents. (laughs) Right. Because he's smaller than Skinner.
1: Right, absolutely.
0: Okay. So that's what they claim is exculpatory. It was lost, it was never tested, it had medium velocity blood spatter. Probably according to Skinner's expert who examined it.
1: You're Um, saying but too small to fit the profile too.
0: Correct, exactly. Exactly. And and it's a gray jacket, not a sand jacket.
1: Right.
0: And they don't they don't address these issues. They just pretend <laughs> that it's, the evidence isn't out there. They pretend that Bobby Donnell was six foot five and a big man. And he wasn't. He was five feet tall, and that's probably why he was so volatile because he had a Napoleon complex. Mhm. And Skinner at five eight probably has something of the Napoleon complex himself. True. You know, he's like True. the little—they're like the little yappy dogs that think they're Rottweilers.
1: Well, at this point, you know, Skinner's still sitting in, in jail uh, mm-hmm. or prison accused in Texas, awaiting his uh, either. Mhm.
0: Can we go in the hairs real quick? I promise not yeah, to take course. long. You're fine. On the hairs, Skinner's argument is that. The mitochondrial DNA doesn't exclude Twyla, Elwyn, Randy, but it also doesn't exclude Uncle Bobby or Uncle Bob, whatever they called him. Right. Um. So that means those hairs could belong to Uncle Bob.
2: hmm
0: In Skinner's mind, what they okay. don't acknowledge is that the hairs could have belonged to Twyla, Elwin, or Randy even though they were visually dissimilar to exemplars from Twyla, Randy, and Elwin, you can have a person excluded on microscopic examination who is then not excluded by mitochondrial DNA. And you can also have someone who is not excluded on microscopic examination who is then excluded with mitochondrial DNA. Right. And they also failed to acknowledge that the hairs, if they didn't belong to Twyla, Elwin, or Randy, they could have belonged to Lisa, who lived in the house. She was Twyla's daughter.
2: Yeah, They could have belonged absolutely. to
0: Twyla's mother, who was a frequent visitor in the house. And even three hairs that still doesn't place Bobby Donald there because there's no nuclear DNA on the knife, on anywhere in the house that places Bobby Donald there.
1: Right, absolutely. There's none.
0: Mm -hmm. And, you know, the final thing is they're ignoring that mixture of DNA from one of Twila's hands, from blood on a hair, I think it was, and a, mm-hmm. a hair that the mitochondrial DNA does not exclude Skinner. They argue because it's, quote, visually dissimilar that it does exclude Skinner. But not according to the mitochondrial DNA, which is probably slightly more reliable right. than visual examination. And it may be that just Whoever did his plucking of hair from him didn't get enough areas on his head. True, you know, because you're you're supposed to go like ten different areas on the head to collect reference samples. And judging by Skinner's um, personality perhaps the person who collected those reference samples thought it wasn't worth his time to argue with Skinner over plucking more hairs than they could get away with plucking.
3: So um,
0: a, a visual examination exclusion does not trump mitochondrial DNA. And again, this is Robert Owen, Innocence Project. DNA is the be-all, end-all. So, like Reed, this is yet another case in which Innocence Project is, is arguing that the DNA, nuclear DNA, is insignificant. But the mitochondrial DNA on three hairs
1: is
3: significant.
1: Of course, only the stuff that helps their case is significant.
0: Well, yeah, I didn't want to put it that way, but sure.
1: (laughs) I've been around this show long
0: enough to realize that one. Am I? Am I? uh, Oh gosh, is Sean going to hate me because now you're not going to be of the same mindset anymore?
1: Ah oh, well, Sean can deal with
0: it, <laughs> <So>. <laughs> you know i don't it's just another way of looking at things
1: right absolutely. absolutely and
0: um you know i if people still listen to everything I've talked about tonight and all of the evidence, and they still believe that he's innocent. At least they've, you know, based that belief on more information than just what came out of Skinner's mouth.
1: Right, right, absolutely. And that's the thing, a lot of people don't like to base their stuff in fact. They like to base their stuff in opinion, which, you know, hopefully, eventually, they're going to start learning that you can't be doing that. Correct. Hopefully belief someday. someday. We're pretty much out of time here. Let's go ahead and briefly talk about what we're going to talk about next week, and then we'll get out of here and
0: uh, get on with the week. All right. All right. Well, um, thank you, everyone, for listening to Clear and Convincing tonight with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Conahan. If you like our show and you want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on, tw- uh, on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. Join us next week for Episode 16, Clear and Convincing Updates. If you've wondered about the status of Jody Arias or Dahlia DiPolito's appeals, or Rodney Reed's request for DNA testing, or the outcome of Jeffrey McDonald's appeal to the U.S. Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, you don't want to miss next week's episode because Michael and I will discuss the status of many of the cases that we've covered on the show since our launch in February. If we have time, we also may discuss more cases that we're going to look at in the future, and I hope that some of you will call in and give us your suggestions for cases that you want us to look into or cases you want more information about. So join us next week. We're going to update cases and maybe look for forward toward the future i might even make predictions about how i think things are going to go in these different cases that we've looked at so thank you again for joining us and everybody have a great night michael i will see you
1: next week see you next week everybody